0: This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. This morning, we talked to Lieutenant Governor Josh Green. He is encouraged that our hospitalization numbers for COVID-19 are on a downward trend, but he is worried about the crisis standards of care that the Department of Health published last week. It sets up a framework that if we have to ration care, it uses age as a trigger. If all things are equal, something that is troubling to elderly advocates. Green says he's reached out to U.S. Surgeon General this weekend to ask for more support.
1: FEMA, through the feds, are helping us with our nurses. 650 visiting nurses and respiratory therapists came from FEMA, and so therefore the federal government, which is extremely helpful. That is uh, in stark contrast to rationing care, right? So that's the right thing to do, which is to bring in extra services and facilities and so on. And the wrong thing to do is to scare the heck out of every senior in the state by suggesting we're going to to go to the crisis standard of care, a.k.a. rationing. So I actually told um, or asked the Surgeon General to consider asking President Biden to also reject any kind of rationing of care. He's better off to go to Idaho, to go to Texas, to go to Alaska, to go to Connecticut, be in Hawaii like they are, and give extra services rather than ever, you know, let someone ration care.
0: My understanding yeah. with this plan is that it was put together from a broad cross-section of the community, including ER doctors, and you work in the ER. So, I mean, what do you know about its genesis?
1: What I do know is that they put it together, and these are great people, but they put it together in a very different time when we were dealing with a different scenario. First of all, we now have far more of our people vaccinated, and so we have the capacity to stop the virus from spreading. Also. We now have the capacity to, with multiple plans, expand our services, to start more facilities up, to use facilities that we've gamed out, whether it's mobile hospitals, which we have the capacity to put up 125 beds for, or to bring in extra capacity nurses. We have 650 nurses and respiratory techs, or use monoclonal antibodies, which were not available back then. So all of these different scenarios now make it possible for us to move far, far away from ever rationing care. I think it's as bad an idea as you could possibly have right now. And, you know, to be frank, there's a clear distinction in our country about which states are doing what. Hawaii has emphasized prevention, vaccination, and care for people, setting up tents when hospitals had to go on divert, providing more care, versus other states which have kept at arm's length any kind of vaccination program, refused to have people wear masks, So in Idaho, for example, the positivity rate is 25%. And, of course, their hospitals are overflowing and they're in crisis. Whereas in Hawaii, our positivity rate is 5.88%. And we have every other possibility to provide care for people. So what I think we need to do is move the direction of providing care. Now, again, I know they were gaming out worst-case scenarios, but we're 30% down from our peak. We were at 448 individuals on September 3rd in the hospital. As of yesterday morning, we were at 327 and falling still this morning. So there's no reason on earth to invoke this crisis standard of care rule, not only because it scares people, but it could even have other consequences. When states go to that crisis standards of care, it might mean that the feds go to the other states where they're committed to caring for people and provide those nurses, provide those extra facilities. So on so many levels, we're better off going to deliver care rather than rationing care
0: so it sounds like you think this is a slippery slope for us
1: oh it's a disaster it's a terrible idea it's important that we are real about triage triage is very different as an emergency room doctor I can tell you I triage all the time if four people are in the ER at the same time if someone is having active bleeding versus someone else who's had a cough for two weeks I go take care of the person who's actively bleeding first of course But if an entire state is dealing with a global pandemic and people are all in danger, you have to encourage everyone, like all hands on deck, move heaven and earth to get more resources into place. So very different things. And the slippery slope when it was floated that it could be our kupuna who would lose the tiebreaker, that was unacceptable. I received calls from elderly individuals, including my mom, who said, are you guys kidding me? And I said, of course, we should never do this, mom. So, you know... This is about all of our parents, and it's about also giving people calm. I think that probably there's a fair amount of regret that the proposal got put out without being completely thought about in the context of 2021 numbers and where we are. But I'm just you know, expressing my feelings about it as a doctor, and I don't think we should ever go there.
0: It was startling when we had the highest number of fatalities in one day, because, you know, we were at 15 total for so long, you know, at the onset of the pandemic. And now, you know, to think, gosh, we've had more than 100 just in the first couple of weeks in September. It's really distressing.
1: It is distressing. And of course, it's happening because we've had this big surge of COVID cases and then a big surge in the intensive care unit. So, Once people are in the intensive care unit, it tends to be a 50-50 proposition about whether people will survive because they're that sick. We are now coming off of those numbers, so you will see the fatality numbers drop quite a lot. But sometimes it takes a while because the reporting of fatalities doesn't usually happen just the next day. Sometimes it's a week or two until all of the proper processes have been undertaken. It's one of those things that you really have to be very respectful about with people's loved ones.
0: And my understanding is the bulk of those fatalities, the recent fatalities, are unvaccinated.
1: Yes, 98% of all of the fatalities from COVID have been people who are unvaccinated. And just 2% of the fatalities have been people who are fully vaccinated. And those folks have tended to be older, whose immune system is kind of weakened. They've had their immunity wane. That's why I, I keep pushing for just vaccination. Even, you know, it, this was an interesting thing that happened this weekend. and It, it just really made my heart sink. Even the guy who was organizing, you know, the protests against mostly me at my home, he caught COVID and now realizes it was never a good idea to be gathering. I feel heart sick that he would get sick with COVID. As much as I dislike people picking on my family, I just knew that we would be caring for him, me and my colleagues in the hospital. And he is unvaccinated and others in that movement are unvaccinated. And they're going to, they have a much higher risk of dying, just along with the people that they've scared off from being vaccinated. So everybody needs to just pitch in together. This is not meant to be a political issue. This is meant to be a health issue.
0: Anything else you want to say, you know, just being a target? You know, I know that the uh, there are certain members of that group that have also targeted Honolulu's mayor, Rick Blangiardi as well, and Libby Char.
1: Yeah, I, I feel badly. I feel badly, first of all, or the director of health who's really burning the candle at both ends and the mayor too who's in his first year but it really isn't about them or me it's about all the people of Hawaii we're just trying to make sure we don't have this virus spreading amongst our kupuna and then to our cake who can't get vaccinated this is not a political question and I'm glad to see you know we're now at 88 plus percent of all the people who are eligible to get vaccinated have initiated we do have 203,000 kids that can't that's change very soon because, you know, the, the likely approval for the Pfizer vaccine for age 5 to 11 is upon us in a week or two. But I just think that this is something that should unite us, not divide us. And so I would appeal to everyone. I, I believe in freedom of speech completely. Protest uh, in a civilized way, but also do it in a way that will protect your own families. And don't scare other people who might be on the fence because they watch, you know, cable news or or on the Internet for too many hours a day. This is a life-threatening virus, and we've seen what it can do to society. Also, I support protests, but I also support good health, and that's where I'm. That's where I'm coming from with all these comments.
0: And to be real clear, so what are you asking the uh, U.S. Surgeon General?
1: I'm asking the Surgeon General to consider taking to President Biden uh, support for all states that would otherwise consider rationing care. I think that. Uh, They've helped us immensely, and they will continue to help us, we know, with our response and life-saving. I think they should go to places like Texas and Idaho and Alabama and South Carolina, and they should provide extra services, extra nurses, extra facilities, any means necessary to keep people alive, because I think that would help unite the country. I think they have been good uniters in general. But the, the talk about mandates gets people in a tizzy sometimes. We could also be talking about delivering extra care all these states. And I think that's the right thing to do.
0: All right. Thank you so much, Lieutenant Governor. I really appreciate your time. You bet. That was Lieutenant Governor Josh Green talking to us this morning about asking the U.S. Surgeon General to provide us with more health care support to avoid going to rationing health care during this pandemic. Well, we just heard the Lieutenant Governor Josh Green talk about possible vaccines for children. And during this pandemic, remote learning for students has been a real concern, an area where we fall short. Honolulu Civil beats Kevin Dayton joins us this morning to talk about broadband on a reality check. Good morning, Kevin.
2: Hi, good morning, Catherine.
0: So, yeah, uh, what I like about your story is you talk about broadband. It's essential, but where is it? (laughs)
2: <laughs> it's, it turns out it's more complicated than you, you might initially think to, to, to answer that question. Maybe I could back up just a step and, and say that, you know, there's a very different situation on the neighbor islands than you folks encounter on Oahu. I know there might be some unhappiness with service, broadband service on Oahu at times, but on the neighbor island, it's, it's a whole other ballgame. Um, you have neighborhoods like uh, the fast-growing district of Puna, for example, that's probably got close to 45,000 people now. And big swaths of of that district are just underserved, badly underserved. And it it made it very difficult for kids to engage in remote learning throughout the pandemic. And it's a continuing problem. Uh, You know, there's some slowly some service providers coming in to to help out a little bit. But it it continues to be a a problem, even in some urban neighborhoods. For example, I'm in Hilo, and I cannot connect to uh, Hawaiian Telecom. That's not that unusual. Their circuits are, are loaded over here, and they can't accommodate any more customers.
0: Well, it's what also I love, good
2: to know go ahead
0: no go what ahead. I love about your story is that you have a visual a graphic that kind of shows where uh, the broadband is uh, or isn't on the big island
1: yeah in
2: in red great big, big mm-hmm. red dots there to talk about it the the, the issue uh, is that when you're applying for federal grant funding you need to be very right down in the nitty-gritty in terms of data and and documenting that there's a problem so the the sort of the, to take a step back there aren't really any Um, detailed accurate maps that will show you where broadband is and where it isn't so that when you need to you can document the problem for the federal government Um, some some people may not know this that that broadband is not regulated like electric or telephone is in the state of Hawaii Um, it's something that basically the the providers do more or less on their own um, and and to get service improved Very often the strategy that people use is to apply for federal funding to to install new infrastructure and provide service to some of these areas that don't have good service. Now, if you're going to do that, understandably, the federal government expects you to document um, what the problem is and where it is. And that's why broadband maps become so important.
0: And it's interesting because your article talks about how uh, some of these companies, though, don't want to share some of the information because it's proprietary.
2: Correct. The, the major players, of course, um, Charter, Charter, which does business here as Spectrum, and Hawaiian Telecom, consider the, the information about what service they provide, what infrastructure they have, and where, what level of service is available in each neighborhood to be proprietary. So they're not necessarily ready to share that information when you, as a community group, for example, you might go in and you want to apply for federal funding. So, to try to address that problem, because we know that there's some very large amounts of federal funding that are going to be made available shortly, to address that, there is an organization, a nonprofit, HELO based, called the AOAMO Collaborative. And they are right now fielding dozens of people who are going to go out and start doing manual tests using uh, electronic equipment that will allow them to test to determine what the level of service is. In all kinds of neighborhoods and they're starting with the neighborhoods that they think have the, the least service or the poorest service.
0: Well that's great and that's going to launch what next month right?
2: That is is, they're, they're hoping to start reporting data back in October correct.
0: Okay but uh, yeah I, I, I think uh, you've got a line in your story is like, until you know where the internet doesn't exist <laughs> you can't fix the problem. <laughs>
2: If you want federal funding to fix the problem, you got to demonstrate that it exists. And for that, you need, to need more services.
0: All right. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Kevin. All right. Thank you. That was reporter Kevin Dayton with today's Reality Check. You can read his story at civilbeat.org. Well, it's been exactly a week since Oahu Safe Access program rolled out here. Now, HVR's Casey Harlow is joining us in studio today. He's been talking to businesses about how it's going. Good morning, Casey.
3: Morning, yes. Uh, About a week since the Safe Access Oahu program has been in effect for a week. Uh, A majority of businesses are complying with it. I was out this weekend and got uh, checked for my proof of vaccination. But there are a handful of businesses that um, are switching their business model Back to takeout only, such as like Elite Coffee and uh, Black Sheep Cream Company. Uh, they're only doing t- takeout service because uh, in their Instagram posts they have said that they don't feel like it's uh, their position to ask for that. It's not up to them to ask for someone's medical decisions, and they feel very uncomfortable doing that. But in that way, they are also complying so they can stay open because 2020 and. Most of 2021 has been a heck of a year for businesses. At this point, uh, I did get a chance to uh, talk to a business owner uh, who opened right at the start of the pandemic. Uh, Christopher Cook, he's the owner and head brewer of uh, Broken Boundary Brewery. Uh, it took him about two and a half years to create his brewery, and uh, his soft opening was right on the head, March 20th, 2020. So, and if you remember that date, that was when then-Mayor Kirk Caldwell shut down restaurants and bars. So being behind and having to switch his operation to takeout uh, was a lot on him. It was a lot of resources and his financial partner, his financial uh, backer, business partner uh, withdrew because of COVID reasons, uh, because it was hard on everybody. Uh, But when it comes to the Safe Access O'ahu program, he wants to uh, comply. But he also said that online that he doesn't want to uh get harassed for having his staff ask for proof of vaccination and this is what he had to say uh regarding uh, the safe access oahu program
4: it's difficult when the regulations i'm supposed to follow are changing so frequently two three months ago i was told that if we got the seventy percent vaccination then all the restrictions are going to go away at that point i spent the last of my reserve cash to build up, staff up, and expand my hours. Like, okay, we're coming out of it. And then three, four weeks ago, we dropped the regulations down. Tourists are told not to come. 50% of my customer base. And now I'm right back where I was three or four months ago, but now with significantly less cash reserves.
3: And there's a little bit of a uh, nuance to that because uh, prior to the Safe Access Oahu program being announced, Governor David Ige did urge visitors not to come to preserve the health care system because we were seeing a spike in cases and hospitalizations. But regardless, Cook says that he feels that um, it's not on him to be able to enforce uh, these policies and to uh, basically have to administer what policymakers are looking for as far as you know, controlling the pandemic, he feels like it's up to him now to kind of like do his part. And in no way is he anti-government. In no way is he, um, you know, against or for the vaccine. He just he's vaccinated, but he just feels that as a business owner, it's not up to him. And he also is a little uh, curious because he sees he keeps up with all vaccination rates. And then he sees that other states are opening up and states and counties that are pretty much on par with us, and this is what he has to say. I look at other
4: states, and other states are open. There's no mask mandate, you know, and not even all red states. There's blue states that are open because they have vaccine rates as high as Oahu's. So it's hard for me to see something like, let's ask tourists not to come, and then you look up the numbers, and tourists are 1% of the known of the cases. So we took an action that drastically affected my customer base to
3: address 1% of the cases. That doesn't make sense to me. So a lot of questions and a lot of um, frustration there as well, because opening up in a pandemic isn't the best thing for a business. Uh, and last week, you spoke with Mayor Rick Blangiardi, uh, asking him about what how he felt about some businesses that um, are openly defying, like certain restaurants in Chinatown being shut down. And uh, also about businesses that are having to make that hard transition back to takeout because they feel like it's discriminatory or they feel like they're being put in a position that they're, they shouldn't be put in. And this is what he had to say.
5: Safe Access Oahu was designed towards the restaurants, bars and gyms, but we have had so many other businesses thank us for taking the initiative. And now that the county had done that, of taking the same steps with their businesses, and we took that leadership role. There's only been a real minority of a couple of restaurateurs who've had this bravado to come out and say we're not going to discriminate against anybody. This is not about discrimination. And we'll deal with those people accordingly. The bulk of them, I just finished a roundtable discussion this morning with restaurants and hotels, giving us an updated report that it's going really well it's going off better than they thought. People are commenting on the fact that they like it when they're coming in. They're showing their vaccination card. You know, people are genuinely concerned. They're not going out and doing this stuff if they're not concerned.
3: Again, um, a majority of businesses are complying, uh, and the ones that do feel that it's not their place, they're complying as well. It's just that uh, they are making it known, uh, you know, we're either doing takeout only or, you know, please don't harass us because we just want to stay open. We, we're business
0: owners. Yeah. They're in a tough spot.
3: Yeah, exactly.
0: And then tomorrow you'll be reporting on, uh, the Maui program.
3: Yes. Uh, going to be talking to a restaurant owner in Maui, uh, Moku Roots, and she has some pretty interesting, uh, perspectives as well. So tomorrow we'll get a, you know, um, just an outlook of her perspective of how that program is going.
0: Okay, thanks so much, Casey. Thank you. We've been talking with HPR's Casey Harlow about the rollout of Oahu's Safe Access Program. You can read his stories online at hawaiipublicradio.org.
6: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Dr. David Hiranaka on Hawaii Island, providing facial, cosmetic, and reconstructive surgery and aesthetic services, including laser treatments. Online at a new face.com.
0: The COVID pandemic opened up the door to virtual care or telemedicine. Could this help solve our local physician shortage? I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk with a local doctor entrepreneur about the online medical visit and what the future holds even after COVID. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show.
6: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering the global MBA with 21-month, 24-month, and 36-month options. Scheidler.hawaii.edu.
0: We've been hearing about higher prices for coffee triggered by poor yields in Brazil due to drought conditions and why has fewer coffee farmers these days and the biological threats from the coffee bear borer beetle to the coffee leaf rust looms large. To many who think coffee is vital, it is hard to imagine mornings without coffee. This week, we talked to Vince Kimura of Smart Yields and USDA researcher Nicholas Manukas about the future of the industry. They point to a situation in Puerto Rico which saw the number of coffee farms drop from 10,000 to 4,500 over 10 years. They worry that could happen here. Here's Nicholas.
7: You know, I am obviously focused on the research and I can tell you that in the 11 years that I've been with ARS here in Hawaii, I've been working with coffee and since 2014, we've come a long way in understanding better the threats to Hawaii coffee. Chief among those is the coffee berry borer that's really threatened us. And we were able to pull together a, a large group of people to really attack it with research and provide better tools for our growers.
0: I guess we've really got to take care of our industry
7: Yeah, the leaf rust is a very serious challenge, and and it's a new one for us relatively. But what's happened with our mobilization for the coffee berry borer that's created a very active partnership and research between the university, the State Department of Ag, and federal agencies, we are well-positioned, I think, now to start responding quicker to the leaf rust than we did to the coffee berry borer. And we're going to have to because the leaf rust threatens the actual survival of the plants and so can really impact yields and prices and the livelihoods of our farmers. So you're right about that.
0: And Vince, jump in here. We don't really want to envision, you know, life without coffee.
5: Yeah, it's it's one of those things where when you look at the data and the fact that, you know, CBB has been around for over 100 years, coffee leaf rust has been around for over 150 years, you know, the economic impact is pretty startling. You know, just there's this really great Atlantic article that basically says, you know, coffee leaf rust is going to ruin your morning, and it's true. You know, we've seen over three billion dollars in economic damage and lost profits, and forced over two million farmers in Latin America, and and that's just the start of things. So, you know, I I'm I'm really worried about it, especially for our coffee industry here because it's such a prevalent global brand. And no one wants to see prices go up and no one wants expensive coffee. So between these pests and climate change, you know, we really need more research and funds to train and educate farmers and and figure things out.
0: You know, we, we've seen the headlines about uh, the prices possibly going up because of the, the grower situation in Brazil, I think, with the drought. Um, you know, and, and certainly we've had our challenges with drought here as well. But when it comes to, let's say, the coffee berry borer, you know, and what we've tried to do to combat uh, that pest, um, I don't know. How how are we doing, Nicholas? I,
7: I think a lot of growers feel like they have a pretty good handle on it, you know, but uh, there's always room for improvement. I, I think one of the key tools that we have here in Hawaii is the uh, biopesticide, Bavaria bassiana, which uh, can be applied um, to, to protect against this beetle, it, it attacks the beetle, and it's pretty widely used. There were, there were subsidy programs for a number of years uh, from the state and from others to help growers adopt that technology. And I think that, together with sanitation practices, changes in pruning, um, various different things that we're able to come up with through the research, uh, a lot of growers have, have a pretty good handle. Having said that, you know all of these things cost extra money, and you know, before there was coffee berry borer, growers didn't have to deal with any of this. Um, so we we continue to try to improve our, our management recommendations and 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 practices so that uh, the coffee industry remains viable here.
0: Well, so what do we need then, um, uh, as far as you know, trying to to combat these threats?
5: Well, you know, it's interesting because you know when you look at using a fungus, which is what the Vera does, to control a beetle. And now we're having another fungal pathogen. When you think about the, just the microbial side of things, it, it makes it really complex and super hard to manage. So for us, it's obviously more data. And I think the one thing that you know USDA ARS, which is the p facility over at Hilo, uh, which is you know, 85 amazing scientists and, and, and staff over there, you know they've they've put in over 10 million dollars of funding to specifically under, better understand cbb in our island community and test and validate a lot of the different methodologies but you know the biggest thing is of course to really get this in the hands of the growers and their their staff i think all the decision makers on the growing side you know get it they understand it but you know there's always a big adoption hurdle which is where we've been trying to kind of really spearhead is that commercialization piece to make it uh you know easy and simple and and again you know there's the other big piece going back to what you asked is the data side of things we see so much siloed information you could just look at it from the federal side or the state side or the county side or the academic side or the grower side and there's not a lot of synergy in terms of overlaying all this information together to work collaboratively and comprehensively so yeah
0: Well, you folks uh, created this app, right, to start kind of monitoring the data that is out there so that they can use it in their fields.
7: We believe the app could be a a real help to bridge some of these problems we're talking about. The app came about by optimizing the monitoring protocols that we used as part of our area-wide project. That was the USDA-funded project that was focused on research. But by collecting a very extensive data set over many farms and over three years, we were able to tear down the amount of data collected to the essentials that are needed for actionable information for the growers and then implement that in an app that will walk people through the steps that are required to collect the information they need for management. And then all of this information uh, is available to them. It can also be aggregated uh, across the landscape to give us a sense of what's happening uh, you know across the whole whole coffee growing area.
0: So is that app being used widely?
7: So the app is currently in development and uh, we're working closely with uh, Vincent and Smart Yields. We have a, a cooperative research agreement in place with them and, and ARS. And uh, we're, we're getting very close to uh, rolling this out. Vincent might be able to say a little more.
5: Yeah, we're quite excited about this opportunity again because when you have over a decade of research Focusing on these pests that are causing all of us to question, you know, our next cup of coffee, uh, you know, it really puts things in perspective for us. So, you know, all this information is great, but then, again, going back to it is how you can actually get it and work with the algorithms that have been vetting and then better provide that information in a simple way for the growers to make decisions in real time. And, of course, the environmental component of this and, and climate change is changing everything. So really looking at this and testing and providing more information to then the USCA, to CTAR and others is is super vital. But again, the the issue is the grower data. How do we get them involved in working with this? And so we're all working in partnership together has been the biggest challenge today.
0: So do we know how these solutions that we've been trying to deal with the bore, you know, how does that affect you know the plant and 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 you know now that we've got the um the the coffee leaf rust you know is is there i don't know a perfect storm here where our our coffee plants may not be able to hold up
7: i love that you brought that up because most growers understand you know that Production and management of their crop is a multifaceted undertaking. Us researchers, sometimes we get focused on a single problem that we're attacking, but the operations out there, the the growers need to deal with everything at once. So we also hope that the app will actually become something that tackles all aspects of quality coffee production, from plant nutrition to pathogens like the leaf rust, insect pests like the coffee berry borer, possibly other pests that might be coming like the leaf miner and and other pathogens that exist out there that aren't in Hawaii yet. You know, regrettably, it's been a a very sad history of repeated invasions, agricultural pests and pathogens here. And if we can have a framework ready in the app that can help people manage all of this uh, systematically and comprehensively and simultaneously, uh, we think that's for the better.
0: So what needs to be done in order to get this app in the hands of farmers, of growers?
5: Well, you know, for us, we, we kind of think big here. And because USDA and CTAR have done such a great job with, with the funding they've had, you know, but it's really expanding it. And because CBD and CLR are, are on every island, it's affecting not only just the big island, but Maui coffee and Oahu coffee and Kauai coffee, it's one of those things where we have to start thinking larger and you know, empowering both the Department of Agriculture with more support, our grower associations, such as the corn and co- uh, coffee growers as well. And then, you know, the big thing is just modernizing and implementing new technologies that we already have seen today. But you know, the biggest challenge is the adoption, as I said earlier. So, you know, who pays for it? Well, clearly the growers want it. But, you know, should they be bearing most of the cost of that? I think the answer is no. As, as Nick said, yeah. this conveyor belt of issues are just coming down. So it's not a matter of if, really, but when. And I think the, the past decade of, of C D B research has really created this great process and methodology where we can apply this to everything. And it's, it's not just coffee that we should be looking about. It's, it's you know, again, as I mentioned, climate change. It's looking at you know, wildfire predictions. It's, uh, it's a lot of different components that could be utilizing for environmental data, too.
7: And, and I just to add to what Vincent said, I, I think that's really on point, but also uh, real practical things like 21st century precision agriculture tools like sensor networks are critical for enabling a lot of these uh, smart agriculture type applications that we're talking about. And these are, these are things that could be deployed for multiple purposes, as Vincent is pointing out but they're going to require some capital investment in, in uh, wide area networks, connectivity, and, and these sorts of things.
0: We're just working through this pandemic. We've got a health and economic crisis, and we are looking to boost ag and become you know more sustainable. So, I mean, am I hearing right? You're basically saying we need the state to help get our coffee industry in firmer footing.
5: I think it's it's a double edged sword. I think there's a one two punch here that we should really focus on. One is there's the technology component, which is a statewide network of overlaying data and expanding that network to really provide this real time solution so everyone can be seeing the same information,
7: mm-hmm.
5: both validated as well. But then of course the other thing too is we we talk about is workforce development. You know, it's the biggest challenge we face, not only in Hawaii but globally, is the labor component for our family farmers and Hawaii is a really great use case because we have almost 90% of our farmers here considered small to medium size. So, you know, the labor component has been, the, you know, one of the things that everyone's been trying to work on, be it, you know, Whitmore or the new Farmer School bill that just got passed this year. Farmers Union's been doing some great things with the Farmer Apprentice Mentoring Program. But, you know, I think there's another angle which we can utilize, especially on the technology side. We have a lot of folks who you know, much like the three developers that, that Nick hired through UH Hilo, you know, they're, they're engaged. They want to stay in Hawaii and they want to provide impact to the local community, but they also want to be on the software side of things. So, you know, the typical how might we be able to create this perfect storm of impact plus, you know, good paying jobs. I, I think it's right there. We've got the federal funding to the CARES. We just need to actually implement it and do that. So engage all ages to better understand soil health, plant health, healthy nutritious food uh, and then prioritize that in a way where we can engage these individuals in a, in a small way but really impactful way to support our farmers.
0: That was Vince Kimura of Smart Yields and Nicholas Manukas, a USDA research biologist, talking to us about the future of coffee here in the islands. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Astronomer Christopher Phillips joins HPR's Dave Lawrence with news of an explosion documented by backyard astronomers in one planet's atmosphere. Here's your Monday Stargazer.
8: Stargazer Time, our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny planet and also things we can try and spot in our dark island skies. As usual, we are so fortunate to have the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips, and wouldn't you know, he's on the line with us right now. Hey Chris, welcome back. What do you have this week? Hey Dave, it's good to be here. So this week, stargazers, the planets of Jupiter and Saturn, continue to dominate
9: our evening skies. They can be found in the eastern sky after sunset. This week the moon is passing through its full phase and as such will make stargazing for those faint objects very difficult.
8: This week an exciting stargazer because you've got an explosion on Jupiter? <laughs> yes, last week a rare event was captured in our skies. An unknown
9: celestial body collided with the planet Jupiter producing a brilliant and quite impressively large explosion in the upper atmosphere. The fireball lasted for around two seconds and could be seen clear across the solar system. Now, unlike most discoveries that we report here on Stargazer, this spectacular event was captured not by large telescopes in Hawaii or Chile, but by backyard astronomers using off-the-shelf telescopes and cameras.
8: Got to imagine that you've got details on what slammed into that thing that we would be able to see it in people's random backyards down here.
9: (laughs) Yeah, well, as you can imagine, this object was big, uh, around 330 feet in diameter, and it probably came in at great speed as it was accelerated by Jupiter's gravitational field.
8: And explain the uh, large telescopes not catching it.
9: Well, major observatories are busy places. Telescope time is dedicated to all types of science projects, and observing planets every night is not really that common. Astronomers are usually too busy using these mighty instruments to peer deep into space and observe
8: other phenomena. That's why we miss all the aliens, huh? <laughs> sure it. <is. laughs> (laughs) (laughs) But on a serious note, this is sort of an area where everyday folks can contribute to science. Yes, exactly.
9: Amateur astronomers are incredibly important to the field, since they are passionate, knowledgeable, and often get to observe whatever they want on any given night. For example, many amateurs continually monitor planets, such as Jupiter, asteroids, and even the Sun to catch events like this that other observatories would miss.
8: And it happens probably more often than
9: people think. It sure does. Over the past 20 or so years, around eight impacts have been detected on Jupiter alone. It being the most massive planet in the solar system is somewhat of a large target, and so it tends to take more of a beating than most other planets. But that's a good thing because it stops these objects making their way into the inner solar system where they might cause trouble
8: for us. Good to know it's out there. Good to get the report from you, Christopher Phillips. Thank you so much. You are welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. We'll catch you next week for Stargazer, which we keep at hawaiipublicradio.org.
6: Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to create, maintain, and preserve open spaces for the Maui community. More at HaleakalaRanch.com.
0: The complex, poetic dialogue of plays written by William Shakespeare often require actors to have a certain level of talent and training to perform them. Opportunities to hone and display that skill in theater productions abound around the world. In fact, the Hawaii Shakespeare Festival just wrapped up last month. But film adaptations of Shakespeare's work are less common, and opportunities to be cast in one are extremely limited. A new film adaptation of The Tragedy of Macbeth, directed by Joel Cohen of the Cohen Brothers makes its world premiere at the New York Film Festival this Friday. It stars Oscar winners Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand. The conversation's Russell SubiONO caught up with uh, a Oahu-raised actor who plays a supporting role in the film.
10: Scott SubiONO grew up on Oahu, and has been a working actor for over 20 years. The name may not ring a bell, but you've seen him in indie movies, national commercials for State Farm and Xbox, and others and in television series like CSI, Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., and Criminal Minds. He made a trip home in 2013 when he was cast in this scene on Hawaii Five-O.
6: I didn't
11: kill Dobbs. You have to do better than that. I haven't seen him for days. We were supposed to meet up after the last score, split to take. What score? I don't know. My job was to feed him the leads, but he never told me which house he was gonna hit. So what, he just didn't show up for the split? No never showed
10: he had a scene with christian bale and amy adams in 2018's vice which was nominated for an oscar for best picture i was curious about his journey from studying acting in utah to being on set with denzel washington so i gave him a call also full disclosure he's my cousin we have the same last name in february of 2019 right before COVID really got a foothold in the country i texted you from the set of 5-0 you congratulated me you're very happy for me then you told me you were on set shooting Macbeth with Denzel Washington and I was just I was just blown away. I was so <laughs> stoked for you. What was that audition process like? And how did you go from, you know, regular everyday life to being on that set?
11: Well, the audition process to answer that part was pretty much like any other audition process where you get called in by casting and you do your thing. So for me, I knew the casting director. We had had a relationship because I had auditioned for her previously and for even for Joel Cohen. So that's always a plus. She requests a tape. So I have a friend help me you know, put it down. And I think by the end of the day, I got a response back that, okay, we want Scott to come in for a callback at Warner Brothers and then I got to go in and that's what was cool is I got I go into this audition and it was with Joel Francis and with Ellen Chenoweth she was casting director she knew me and that's always a good thing I mean when you're auditioning and you're getting called back you know as an actor you're doing your job if you're not getting called back there's a problem you know in the world of acting you know when people think of fans, they think of the the people watching the films, mm-hmm. but for an actor, your fans are the people in the business. So your first fans are those casting directors. You you want to do everything you can to, to have them be your fan and you can't make anyone be a fan. You just have to bring that, that thing inside of you that people like. I was very pleased. And even if I had not got the part just to be able to read opposite of Francis McDormand was yeah would have made it all worth it.
10: You've been a working actor in film and television for over 20 years, but where did you get your true start? Did you have a family member or a teacher tell you as a child that you should be in the movies or was it something that you had in your heart, something that you were set on while you were growing up? When did you decide that you were going all in?
11: I didn't decide until uh, you know my mid twenties. Mm-hmm. I knew I wanted to be in the arts my entire life when I was a kid I was I was uh, in Hawaii actually when I was living in Hawaii I had learned about royalty income and I'm like wait what what is that you so okay? you invent something and you get paid the rest of your life on that and I'm like I'm in and so as a 10 year old or 11 whatever I was 12 years old I'm like I gotta come up with an invention I gotta figure this out you know I always knew it would be uh, just I don't know I was just always kind of open to that. but you know if you want to know the truth, Russell, it's I had a lot of fear because you know I had I did not you know my dad was a little bit rough to grow up with so it you know I had to overcome a lot of fear and so I I feel like I started late and by the time I actually got the guts to do it, I just decided I didn't want to be an old man and say, well, I wonder what would have happened if I had done that. So I said, I'm doing it. And since I was uh, ski bumming and living in Salt Lake City at the time and Park City, I started my career there at the University of Utah and I started training. And then I started uh, booking relatively quickly and I knew I either had to go to New York or LA and I chose LA. And, was there a particular
10: and- reason why you chose LA? Well, it's
11: more work and because of the film industry was here as opposed to theater and i felt like i had a much better chance to do that in los angeles and it's it's been very difficult (laughs) Mm -hmm. i'm not so sure i would have done it if i'd known it was this difficult if you don't know the truth
10: according to imdb you were in an episode of touch by an angel in 1997 but it lists your first credited role in 1999's blue ridge Fall. Then in 2006, you get your first role on a network television series as a desk clerk in the original CSI. When you look back over your journey, what are your memories of those days when you were just starting out?
11: When I first started, it's just all you're, you're bright eyed and bushy tailed. You know, every everything is exciting. And it, I think what kind of saves you is that filter of ignorance,
10: mm-hmm.
11: you know. You don't know what you don't know. And you kind of go in charging into it boldly. But when I look back on it, you know, it, it can be a little embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> we all we all got to start from somewhere is the reality. But my very, very, very first booking was a local commercial in Salt Lake City for a, a restaurant called D's Restaurant. I got paid 500 bucks and I was to the moon with excitement. But the reality is, There really is no arriving because we evolve, you know? And so the journey is what's cool for me.
10: Like a lot of actors, you started out with commercials and roles in small movies or television series. And now you have a role in Shakespeare's The Tragedy of Macbeth. Can you share with our listeners what it was like working on that set?
11: Oh, yeah, that, first of all, I mean, every day, I was just thrilled to be there. And what was cool about it, I think the best thing for me was that There was this long rehearsal process and hanging out with these people, hanging out with Denzel and Francis and Stephen Root, uh, Corey Hawkins, and just hanging out with these people and working. And it was fantastic. It would just, it felt it's those moments where you feel like, wow, I'm alive. And when you're working with, when you're working with smart, talented people, you become Smarter and more talented. It's we we are who we hang out with. And that's one of the things that really excites me about this industry is that you can really flourish as a person.
10: Did you have any nerves at all?
11: I don't know if I had any nerves that rattled me. And I think that's probably mostly due to Frances. I mean, she set the tone right off the bat that this was going to be like a theater company. Everyone belonged and everyone played a part. And I so I attribute that to her. She was incredibly welcoming and incredibly generous with everybody.
10: In your time as a working actor, what's been your observation of diversity in film and TV? Have you seen a change in the opportunities for indigenous people and minorities to tell their stories or to be on crews or to appear in front of the camera
11: absolutely and you know that's what was great about Macbeth is that it was very much that I don't really know the numbers I mean growing up in Hawaii you, you get used to that and I grew up on uh, in the Philippines as well and but what's cool about this set is that we have a lot of black cast and Denzel is playing Macbeth uh Scott who is black and we're not commenting on it it just is that's awesome so as it should be, but oh yeah, Hol- Hollywood is definitely moving in that direction more. So they still have a ways to go, but the ball is rolling. And this, the younger generation is not going to put up with it anymore. And that's really what happens is a lot of this is um, out with the old and in with the new. That's the way anything is.
10: Do you get recognized in public? Anybody come up to you and say, hey, you're that guy. Uh, yeah, sometimes yeah. I do actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think one of the, mo- the coolest ones, was I,
11: I did this film a long time ago uh, called Horse Crazy. What's that? It's a snake that's on your back, you idiot. What? You're an idiot. You got duped by kids. They're probably back
10: there taking the horses right now. Come on. Oh, I love that film. It's a great
11: little movie for families. There's something about it. Kids love it, right? Because the kids are the hero. Well, I play this bad guy in that one and I have an eye patch. I had booked Marvel, the Agents of Shield. I had just a one-day guest star in that and I needed to ride a horse. And I can ride horses, but you know, I don't ride them enough. So anytime I I I get a job where I need to ride a horse, I go and get some training, just kind of brush up on it. Anyway, as I'm sitting there sort of sort of doing the paperwork to sign up for my uh my horse that day, this little kid, you know, all cowboyed up, he kind of looks up at me and he goes, did you used to have an eye patch? And I go, I look at him and I go, huh? He goes, and did you ride a Palomino? And my brain is racing going, what the hell is this kid talking about? And then he says some other things and I go, oh yeah, yeah, that was me. And he goes, I thought
10: it was you. What's next for you? What do you, what do you have in the pipeline? What are you working on? I have two things
11: right now I'm working on. I can't talk about them. Of course, I'm excited about them both. I'm excited to work with one of them is a young korean director and the other one is an exciting story with uh, that i believe will be on apple tv as well as macbeth it's uh, of course premiering at the new york film festival it's going to close the london film festival and then um, you'll be able to see it on apple tv and you'll be able to see these other
10: things i'm doing on
0: apple tv as well
10: thank you so much for hanging out with me
0: thank you man that was HPA's Russell Subiano talking with his cousin, actor Scott Subiano. Uh, Scott plays a supporting role in the new film adaptation of The Tragedy of Macbeth, opening in the New York Film Festival this weekend. And that's a wrap for us. Tomorrow we hear about a new exhibit marking the 60th anniversary of the Peace Corps. Do you have a Peace Corps story to share with us? Call our talk back line, 808-792-8217. Miss something and want to listen back to something you heard today? All of our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Katherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.